so let's, uh, let's pray and let's ask God to speak to us this morning. And yeah, I, I just believe God's got something for us. And so Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to hear from your word, openly hear from your word. We don't have to hide in a room. We don't have to uh, hide your word under a bed to, to have it. We can come here in the morning, in the bright of day, and listen to the word spoken in public. And I thank you for that. Lord, I ask that you would help us this morning to take the words that are spoken and the conviction we may feel or the encouragement we feel and put action behind it. To not just be hearers, but doers in your name. Amen. Amen. You wouldn't grab that for me, would you, Matt? Thank you. Yeah, last week Matt was referring to, it was called Moved uh, by the Spirit. And so in uh, the preliminary time, right before the service, uh, I met a couple uh, that were first-time attenders, and, and they attend uh, Grace Baptist Church, they told me. And then I got over to the other side, and the pastor from Bayside Baptist was here. He's on sabbatical. He came here. And so naturally, having the couple from Grace Baptist and the pastor of Bayside Baptist, I preached on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Which is, you gather all the Baptists. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, but, but, but that's, the, that's the way it goes. Uh, I really appreciate you being here. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. So last week, uh, the Spirit was moving in the camp of Dan, and Samson stood at the crossroads. God wanted to, to use him, but he, was, but he was pulled in another direction. Samson had a choice to make. And today, in, in part three, we get to see the choice that Samson made. And it's found in Judges 14. Uh, you can turn there if you have your Bible with you. And, and he, he didn't make a very good choice, our guy Samson. He was influenced by his carnal nature he was drawn away from the plan of God by his own selfish desires. And, and, and once again, I'm, I'm afraid that, that we see a little of ourselves in Samson's story. So chapter 14 of the book of Judges, beginning in verse 1, reading four verses today, it says, And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me to wife. His father and his mother said unto him, Is it there not a woman among all the daughters of your brethren or among all your people that you have to go and take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. His father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord, and he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. God had a, a perfect plan. And Samson's parents had some advice, but he would have none of it. I'll do it my way, Samson said. My Way, of course, is a song written by Paul Anka back in 1967, made popular by Frank Sinatra. Some of the lyrics says, I've lived a life that's full, 
I've traveled each and every byway and more, much more than this. I did it my way. Regrets. I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and oh, much more than this, I did it my way. It's a sad song, really. I've heard it played at funerals as, as though it's a, a badge of honor. But how much better to have lived God's way. But Samson didn't need anyone. He was big and strong and he was used to getting his way. So when Samson met a girl from the neighboring city of Timnath, just three miles southwest of Zorah, his hometown, it mattered little to him that not only was she not an Israelite, she was a Philistine. It wasn't his parents' way. It wasn't God's way. Samson did it his way. Get her for me to wife, he says in verse 2. Get her for me, for she pleases me well. Those are the words right out of Scripture. You can almost hear the insolent tone in his voice and see him stomping his foot like a spoiled child. To spoil, by the way, means to impair, to damage or harm the character or nature of someone by unwise treatment, excessive indulgence, or pampering. Parenting is a challenging undertaking. There are a number of different approaches to parenting, and every kid is different. Most of us as parents are just trying to survive, hoping somehow to keep our head above water. We have to support a family, maintain a home, sustain a marriage, and maybe carve out some time and some money for something fun once in a while. Many approach parenting passively, taking it as it comes, operating reactively rather than actually having a plan of attack. John Ball, our own licensed therapist from Central Assembly, he will be teaching a parenting class beginning in September during the Sunday school hour. I think you'll find John's class helpful wherever you are along the parenting journey. Did, did you know, by the way, that every Sunday at 9 a.m., we have three adult electives along with classes for children of all ages, even care for our infants. Every Sunday, 9 a.m., beginning in September, the new quarter will start, and that will have, one of the classes will be a parenting class. In the meantime, here are nine ways that we spoil our children. According to a website called 
Sleeping should be easy. It's a website that offers tips and inspiration to overwhelmed moms, to help them enjoy parenthood. I don't know anything about the website other than this list. Please don't take this as an endorsement. I don't know, but this list is basic and brilliant, and I like lists. Nine ways we spoil our children. Number one, I put it in your notes because I thought it would be helpful if you're a parent. Number one, you give in to their every request. Okay, that's pretty basic. We get that. You give in to their every request, you're going to spoil them. Number two, you deliver empty threats. Number three, you're inconsistent with expectations and consequences. Raise your hand. If that, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you shield your child from difficult emotions. Yeah, baby. You overindulge with material items. Number six, you need to bribe your child to get things done. We won't ask for a show of hands on that one. Number seven, you don't teach manners or courtesy. Number eight, you allow your child to disrespect you. Ouch. And last one, number nine, your child has too much say in family life. Your child has too much say in family life. In other words, it's a child-centered home. Perhaps this is the family dynamic that Samson grew up in. You remember from part one that his mom was barren. And then the angel of the Lord came and, and promised a child. Perhaps Manoah and his wife were so thankful to have a child that they lauded over him. They met his every demand and they catered to his every whim. They had imagined life with no children, and now they had one. Sometimes emotion clouds judgment. However we got there, Samson was spoiled rotten. Samson reminds me of a guy named Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson was heavyweight, he became heavyweight boxing champion at the age of 20 years old. 1986. He was seemingly unbeatable. He, he struck fear into the hearts of heavyweight boxers. Now think about that. I'm not talking about guys off the street. This guy struck fear into the hearts of heavyweight boxers. He had, now let this sink in, 22 first-round knockouts. So 22 times, another heavyweight boxer, again, not a guy off the street, 22 times a heavyweight boxer couldn't get out of the first round with him. He was probably the toughest guy in his neighborhood growing up. He had all kinds of advantages as a young man because of his athletic prowess. And no one could beat him. He won his first 37 fights as a pro. He was on top of the world. No one could say no to Mike Tyson. But Desiree Washington tried. She was a beauty contestant who Tyson raped in an Indianapolis hotel room. He was convicted and served three years of a six-year prison sentence. Tyson eventually made a comeback to the ring, and he worked his way up to a couple of mega pay-per-view events with Evander Holyfield. They were huge paydays. But the results didn't go Tyson's way. And spoiled children 
don't like it when things don't go their way. Tyson lost the first fight via technical knockout, and he threw a hissy fit, claiming he was cheated. The rematch drew even more interest and grossed over $100 million, of which Tyson garnered $30 million himself. But when it was clear the fight was slipping away, Tyson bit one of Holyfield's ears, and the match was temporarily stopped while Holyfield received medical attention, and Tyson was reprimanded by referee Mills Lane. Why do I feel as though I swallowed a ring announcer? The fight resumed, and in the third round, a frustrated Tyson, unable to control the fight, bit Holyfield on the other ear. The bite was so severe, a piece of Holyfield's right ear was found on the ring floor after the fight. The fight was stopped, and Tyson was disqualified. When a woman said no, he raped her. When he found someone tougher than him, he bit his ear off. Those, those are the things spoiled children do. And when it's all said and done, they sing, I did it my way. Samson was spoiled. Like Mike Tyson, he was the strongest kid in his neighborhood. He never lost a fight. He was gifted, indulged, and coddled. Who could say no to Samson? Get her for me to wife. Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But marrying this woman would present problems. It was, a, it was a bad idea. It presented the issue of the unequal yoke. His parents tried to articulate this to him in verse 3. His father and his mother said unto him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of all your brethren, among all our people, that you have to go and take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson's marriage to a daughter of the Philistines was very improper. It was not a racial thing. It was a spiritual thing. Samson was not only an Israelite, he was a, a Nazarite devoted to the Lord. And, and you can learn more about that by listening to part one of this series. We talked about that. Shall someone dedicated to the service of the Lord be united with a daughter of the Philistines, a worshiper of Dagon? But from Samson's perspective, those things seemed unimportant. He saw her, and she looked good to him, and nothing else mattered. It does not appear to us that he had any reason to think of her as wise or virtuous, or in any way likely to be an asset to him spiritually. But what he saw... He liked. There was something that drew him to her in his carnal mind, and nothing else would do. He had to have her. His choice of a wife was guided by his eye and governed by his fancy, and he had no one to blame but himself when he found a Philistine in his arms. In the end, it would be his undoing. In the Christian realm, we use the term unequally yoked. The terminology comes from 2 Corinthians 6.14 where it says, 
Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness? That's, that's the word of God, by the way. And, and it's pretty clear. Let me just say it, okay? Let me, let me just say it. If you're saved and you're choosing to date or to marry a non-Christian, you are violating the Word of God. You are kicking against the goads. You're saying, I know it's God's way, but I'll do it my way. And you are unequivocally and without qualification making a mistake. You will wind up with a Philistine in your arms. What is it that makes you think you're the exception? The day you think you're, you are the exception is the moment you're ripe for a fall. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Simon's, Samson's parents did well to attempt to dissuade him from yoking himself together with an unbeliever. They knew it was a bad idea. Just like God knew it was a bad idea. They knew Samson was heading for trouble. It, it helps for us to understand the terminology and that starts with knowing what a yoke is. A yoke is an implement used to harness two oxen together to pull a plow. It would be a very familiar illustration to agricultural societies where the teaching of 2 Corinthians was offered. The yoke is, is often used in the Bible to express the symbolism of having two joined together who are similar in capacity and similar in purpose. Jesus referred to a yoke when he told his followers in Matthew 11 to come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light." When we walk in harmony with Christ, that speaks of walking in harmony with Jesus, we can share the burdens of life with Him. Pulling in the same direction as Jesus makes life a lot easier. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said. Get into the yoke with me, Jesus said. And we'll pull together. To be unequally yoked, as described in 2 Corinthians 6.14, means that one holds the other back in, in some sense. Perhaps one is strong and the other is weak, or, or one is large and the other is small. An unbeliever and a believer will have a totally different set of values and principles. They will pull in different directions. That's why the admonition not to be unequally yoked applies not only to marriage, but other aspects of life too. It would be very difficult to be, in, to be business partners with an unbeliever. His goal is to make money and yours is to please God. That will take you in two different directions. 
In 2 Corinthians 6, the passage teaching about unequal yokes, Paul contrasts light with darkness. They have nothing in common. They are incompatible. They cannot both occupy the same space at the same time. When you mix light with dark, something has to give. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Matthew 5.16 Tragically, according to John 3, men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. I am, come in, I am come a light into the world, Jesus said in John 12, that whosoever believes in me will not abide in darkness. You have to choose. The, the principle of the unequal yoke applies even to dating. And it's at this point where people tend to say, they give you that look. See that look? <laughs> Come on. It, it's, it's only a date. <laughs> We're just going out on a date like I'm unreasonable and irrational. Me. But the reality is, and we could do a survey, that every married couple here started their relationship with a date. Just know this, the one you date may be your mate. I don't, I don't believe, so here's my statement, here's my over-the-top doctrinal statement for the day. I don't believe you should date anyone without the thought that this could be your lifelong companion. I don't believe you should date anyone without the thought that this could be your lifelong companion. And a dad of a couple daughters in the back has given me the thumbs up. <laughs> and if this is someone you couldn't marry, someone that you're about to date, if this is someone you couldn't marry, without being unequally yoked, then you should not even date them. And there's a reason. You'll be, you'll be heading in two different directions. You will be like two oxen of unequal strength and size. You will have different visions, different priorities, different objectives. And, and the problem is, it's all easy to overlook in the infatuation stage but it becomes greatly magnified as our relationship develops and takes shape and eventually children come into the picture and the infatuation fades and life gets tough and problems surface and now what do you do with your two different visions? Now how do you handle your different priorities? Now somehow you have to make a decision given drastically different values. Eventually you'll struggle and someone will have to compromise. And I can almost guarantee you which one it will be. God commands Christians not to marry unbelievers because it's in your best interest. And so he tells us, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness? Ah, but somehow we, we forge ahead anyway. And when we enter into a relationship with an unbeliever, we're telling God, 
I know more than you do. We're defying God's admonition to us. We're shunning His advice in favor of our own way and our own plan. We're thumbing our nose at God and we're singing my way like Frank Sinatra and we're stomping our foot like Samson and saying, Get her for me! We're saying, I'm the exception. I'm different. And we're headed for disaster. It's only a matter of time before we wind up with a Philistine in our arms. In effect, we're moving out from under God's protective covering and placing ourselves in a very vulnerable and dangerous place, and that is not overstating it in the least. How much better to do it God's way? Samson wanted his way, and he got it. Listen, just because you get what you want doesn't mean it was God's will. It's really bad theology to say, well, it didn't happen, so it must not have been God's will. And you'd be surprised at how many people subscribe to that theology. Some people think whatever happens must be God's will. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The reality is, now hear me church, the reality is we change the course of history with every decision we make. Now God knows exactly what he's doing. I believe that with all of my heart. But free will is the wrench in the works of God's perfect plan. We can choose our way or we can choose God's way. Samson got his way, and it didn't serve him well. So what are some of the benefits of not getting our way? I think this is an important lesson. What is God trying to accomplish when we don't get our way? Let me give you four reasons that we don't always get our way. Number one, to learn patience. When we always get what we want, when we want, we become fat and soft. We, we lose our ability to roll with the punches and, and to put up with inconvenience and delay. That's one of the reasons we don't always get what we want when we want it. Sometimes when we, when we don't get our way, God is just trying to teach us patience. Second, to develop perseverance. When things are handed to us too easily, we forget what it's like to fight for something. We appreciate things more when we have to work for them. The process of working our way up produces something good in us. We learn endurance and we forge character that we can develop no other way. No pain, no gain, it's been said. And how true it is. Effort matters. If you really want something, you should be willing to work hard to get it. Some people talk about all the things they want in life, but they never do anything about getting them. Listen, your success is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. 
Inspiration comes and goes. Inspiration waxes and wanes. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. The question is, are you disciplined enough to work for it? Are you disciplined enough to get it done? There are lots of dreams and lots of plans, but if you want something bad enough, you have to rise up and work hard to make it happen. Listen. No one owes you anything. Develop perseverance and you will succeed. And not getting your way all the time helps you to develop perseverance. Another reason we don't get our way is to learn to trust God's timing. Not everything happens when we want it to. We have to work our way up. We need to pay our dues. We need to be willing to invest on the front end in order to reap the benefit on the back end. We need to learn to pay now and play later. But when I do things my way, I miss out on God's long-term best. And inevitably, I wind up with a Philistine in my arms. So we trust Him. He sees so much more than, than we see. He's, he's privy to the big picture. He sees the totality of the equation while we see only a tiny sliver of our perspective. So we learn, church, to trust His timing. Number four, why don't we get what we want? What are the benefits of not getting what we want? Number four is God does not want you to be entitled. The most Miserable people in the world are entitled. They think they deserve something. So they're always complaining about their rights and getting what's rightfully theirs. They're always living off someone else's dime and complaining about it in the process. The Hebrews, remember those guys? They were in the land of Egypt. They wandered out into the wilderness. And, and sometime after they were wandering in the wilderness... After their miraculous, I mean miraculous, deliverance from Egypt and having all of their needs met, right? I mean, the Red Sea parts for these guys. The army of Pharaoh bearing down on them and God miraculously delivers them from the army of Pharaoh. Millions of people heading out into the desert with nothing to eat, no water to drink. God provides water. They wake up every morning and there's manna, there's bread on the doorstep. And somehow, during this time of wandering in the wilderness, it says they soon forgot His works. They waited not for His counsel, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and they tempted God in the desert, and He gave them their request, the Bible says, but sent leanness into their soul. People that get their way all the time, the spoiled child, the, the Mike Tysons, the Samsons of the world are the most unhappy of people. They got their way, but it produced a leanness in their soul. Always getting what they want, when they want it, undermines their character and erodes their strength. And now they're at the whim of their circumstances. So what can we learn from all this today? Three quick lessons, and then I'm done. 
Number one, we can't always have what we want when we want it. We have to trust God, and we have to trust God's timing. Breathe. Learn patience. Wait on the Lord. There's an expression we don't use anymore. We don't like it. We're microwave people. We stand in front of the microwave and say, come on, come on, I don't have all minute. <laughs> but we need to learn to wait on the Lord, lest one way or another we wind up with a Philistine in our arms. Number two, it's not God's will for you to have everything you want. You realize that? It's not God's will for you to have everything you want. It did not behoove Samson. It was not good for Mike Tyson. And it's bad for you too. God is not a a vending machine where if we put in the right amount of money and push all the right buttons that we get what we want. A God like that would produce a leanness in your soul. And number three, in spite of what Frank Sinatra says, God's way is better than my way. Regrets? I've had a few. But surrendering my life to Jesus is not one of them. The year was 1983 and I made my way into the sanctuary. And the gospel was preached. And I gave my life to Jesus. I wouldn't change it for the world. It was the best decision I ever made. I'm so thankful that that day I gave him my life. And I trust me, I was still a work in progress then. I'm still a work in progress now. But Jesus loves me. And I want to be all that I can be for him. And so I'm learning these, these things that I preach to you. You know, no one, no one learns more than me. Preparing it, putting it all together. I see myself in there. And if I could only preach what I'd mastered, I'd be long, long done. So we just keep trusting him. We trust his timing. There's these things that we want and sometimes we don't understand why we don't get them. And and God is saying, you know, I, I hear you. I hear you. I'm glad I don't get everything I want. If you're a parent, you understand that. There's a reason you don't give your child everything they want. They want more candy. Why why would you withhold something that they want from them? Well, you you have a little different perspective, right? You see more than, than they see. Well, how much more us, with our tiny sliver of reality, and the eternal God of the heavens and the earth, the one who knows the end from the beginning. And so we we make our requests known. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with your child asking for more candy. There's nothing wrong with our requests. But when it comes to the answer, that's when we have to say, God, I I trust you. 
we pray the Our Father and, and, and we think of that as the model prayer, and it is, it's beautiful, but I think the model prayer is the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus said, if there's a, a way around this, if there's another way, Father, that would be my preference. But then he said this, but not my will, but yours be done. And so it speaks well of you and it speaks well of me when we say, God, if, if I had my way, here's what I would do. But I know you know so much more than I do. Maybe you can use my circumstances that I'm trying to pray my way out of to impact another life. And it's not about this life, it's about eternity. And so we just trust it to him. But if you're here this morning, and maybe you're like me way back in 1983, and you need Jesus, and somehow you came here today, maybe it wasn't of, of your own volition, it wasn't for me. But I encountered God here. And the people here were different. This wasn't what the people of Central Assembly did. This was who they were, and I noticed that right away. God began to work on my heart, and in time I surrendered my life to him. I said, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, can you wash away my sins? Lord, we, we talk about the cross, and we think about the cross, and you had no sin, and yet you went to the cross to pay for my sins. And so, Lord, I just receive that from you today by faith. If that's you this morning, as I close in prayer, I, I would like you just to slip up your hand. And by slipping up your hand, you're not joining our church. There isn't any obligation on your part as far as from our perspective. But you're just saying, Tom, I'm trusting Jesus this morning with my salvation. I could never be good enough. I need Jesus. If that's you this morning, would you slip up your hand? so I can include you in our closing prayer. You're saying, I need Jesus. I just want to wait one more second, because I'm glad the pastor in 1983 waited one more second for me. So this morning you need Jesus. You're saying, Tom, I'm living for myself. I want to begin to live for Jesus. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Church, would you pray with me? Would you pray... There's someone here and their heart just pounding out of their chest. And just like I said earlier, they're saying, I'll just do it myself. But let's move to a different place. Let's move to that place of vulnerability where God can have his way in your heart. You need Jesus this morning. Just slip up your hand. I see that hand. God bless you. Thank you. Someone else today. All right, let me, let me address another group before I turn it over to the worship team. Maybe you're a little bit like me. A little bit like Samson. A little bit like Mike Tyson. Where sometimes we stomp our foot when we don't get our way. And maybe today God has reminded you like he reminded me this week as I was putting this together. 
But Tom, there's a reason you don't always get your way. In fact, God has said to me this week, you've gotten your way a little too much, Tom. And it's produced a leanness in your soul. So today, maybe God is saying something like that to you. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand? It's our way of acknowledging. We're saying, God, forgive me. I'm spoiled a little bit. I get my way an awful lot. And it's produced a leanness in me. Lord, I want to I wanna, I wanna be the man that you've called me to be. I want to be the woman that you've called me to be. There's hands up all around this auditorium. Thank you. Lord, I, I pray for the folks that have responded one way or another. Lord, we just want more of you. We recognize the pull that the world has. And all the advertisements and, and all the messages from the world tell us that we can go for all the gusto, we can collect the whole set, we can have it all, we deserve it. Who deserves it more? I can live my way. And you remind us again, it's really about your way. We want to live for you. So Lord, I pray you'd help us on that journey. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.